You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, gang, so class called The Cruelty of Heresy. Why are you here? You're probably here because maybe you know something about this. The Church of the Advent is really knows about correct doctrine and orthodoxy and all that. And Fitzsimmons Allison, whose book is The Cruelty of Heresy, has been here and I've been told has talked about this in the past. So I'm not trying to do all that Fitzsimmons Allison has done. If you want that, Go read his book. It's, I was telling Fran here, who's related to Fitzsimmons Allison, that that book in college, way before I thought about doing ministry, way before I was really all that interested in my face again, it was kind of like pretty dormant. I read his book on the cruelty of heresy, and it hit me unawares. I really did not expect this book. I read it mainly just to find out I was doing ancient history, and I was like, well, I should probably know about the ancient Christian world, too. So read this thinking it would be dry as dust and ended up being one of the most edifying books I had read in all of college. And feel free, feel free to come in. Come come on in. So we're talking about the cruelty of heresy, and Fitzsimmons Allison calls it the cruelty of heresy for good reason. When we think of heresy, we think transgressive. We think hip. We think cool. Uh, And sure, when I was a teenager, I really thought that was cool too. Sometimes I think it's cool now because I'm still a sinner. But he calls it the cruelty of heresy because it's not hip. In fact, when we take these ideas about Christ to their logical conclusion, they're cruel. They're actually, they don't lead toward flourishing. They don't lead toward the good life. So for this class, we're going to talk about docetism. You don't have to know what that is. You don't even have to know that name coming out of here. What I want you to leave here with is the impulse of docetism in all of us, both as Christians and just as people living out in the world, because this docetic impulse is everywhere. But before I get into what docetism means and what that impulse looks like and why it's harmful, not hip. Let's let's begin, because we're beginning this four-week class by talking about what we're trying to do here. So what am I trying to do? What I'm not trying to do is I'm not trying to make you theological policemen. If you came in here thinking, I'm going to leave these four weeks, not that you would think this, but if you came out here thinking, I am going to, you know, cross every T and dot every I after this, and I am going to be on the lookout for heresy under every rock, please go to join another class because that's not what you're going to get here. What I'm really trying to do is take a look inward at us, less so looking outward. Of course, we'll look outward, but I want the primary thrust of this to be about ourselves before it's about anyone out there. So the goal is not to become theology policemen. And I say that uh, with force because anyone who's been to seminary, anyone who's had you know a, a little dose of theology, a lot of times that's our first inclination is, I didn't know it was right, now I know it's right, and now I'm here to get all those people who don't have it right. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to talk about why heresy is cruel for me, why, how it, why it's cruel for you, only secondarily why it's cruel for the world. The second thing I want to say, and this is really kind of part B of the first thing, is, again, if we're looking for heresy under every rock, 
then we are going to find it everywhere. Because the best theologians have told us that every single sermon that you've ever heard is heterodox. Heterodox, heresy, it's similar. People say heterodox to make it a little bit less intense than heresy. But the same idea is true. And what they mean by that, every sermon is heterodox, is that the preacher cannot encapsulate all of the Christian faith in one sermon. Whenever you preach, you're emphasizing one thing and not another. You're not giving the whole thing. As even if you're trying to give all of it, you're never going to have all of it. The Christian faith at root might be simple, but it's also like, and this is why we can never complain, like, oh, the theologians, like they're, they're making something simple too complicated. Because there is a rocket science component to theology. Now, I'm not that guy. Fitzsimmons Allison was probably that guy. But we've got to keep these things in mind. First, again, we're not theological policemen. And two, everything we're going to hear is a little bit heterodox. So what is the aim of the Christian life in light of that? Well, the aim of the day-to-day life of the thinking Christian is, I think the illustration is one of those old-fashioned radios. Uh, we don't have these in our cars anymore. Maybe some of you actually have one of these radios, but you know how like when you're turning the dial and you hear the static, and the more you turn it, it starts to get clearer, and maybe you've gone too far, you gotta go back. Really the aim of this class, again, not to be policemen, recognizing there's heterodoxy in pretty much everything we're saying, but our goal is a constant, a lifelong shifting of that radio dial to get to the clarity amidst the noise. Again, that's not just for those people over there, but that's for us too. So with that in mind, those three things in mind, let's go, let's jump right into docetism. So docetism, a big word, again, you don't even have to remember the word. It's about the impulse. It's about the, the big picture. Docetism means to seem or to appear. And this is perfect for understanding this, right? Because the docetist thought that Christ only appeared to be human. Now, this seems pretty weird to us, right? Because docetism is the earliest heresy. You see the Gnostics in the scriptures, right? Paul's aware of the Gnostics. For you and me, we might have no problem believing Jesus was a man, and for some of us, a lot of us, it's hard to believe that he was God, or that's the claim that of faith, right? But in the earliest church, it was kind of the opposite. It was Jesus was this great, either lowercase g God, or was God himself. And the, the struggle was to imagine how Jesus being divine could possibly take on something as ugly as flesh. Now think about this. I mean, we might think, okay, they're a little bit crazy, but, you know, like, bodies decay. Um, as much as we like to fix ourselves up, if we didn't fix ourselves up for four, five, ten days, we'd be a mess, and, you know, it would smell in this room. So we get the impulse, right? They're like, okay, something so lovely, something so divine as Jesus couldn't have sweat, couldn't have, you know, been frustrated, couldn't be like me. And I think that's part of what we see with docetism. And the main thing with docetism is that someone divine 
could not actually experience suffering and death. And so we see in these old Docetic Gnostic texts, we see things like, well, Jesus didn't actually go to the cross. Simon of Cyrene went in his place. In fact, Jesus was laughing at them for thinking they had him. Um, and, you know, him crying in the wilderness, right? Or in, um, in the garden, right before. Crying out to God. He's experiencing anguish. They don't like this. And, and I understand that impulse, right? Sometimes we want Jesus to be floating six inches off the ground to be the Superman, um, and to not really be like one of us. Because if he's one, like one of us, oh, we know ourselves all too well. So again, the big question of the earliest church, and these are Christians here, is, and they're steeped in this culture, in this, this Greek Platonic culture that reinforces that, right? When we die, we'll become orbs out there. It'll be so much better. Let's leave this prison house of the flesh. Um, what is it in our day, like something that's just culturally, it's in our milieu, and we struggle against some of the things that Scripture says because we're so enmeshed in this culture. I'm not going to give you any examples there. I want you to come up with that on your own. But this, the earliest Christians really are there. Um, the earliest Christians are really fighting for what we later would call the doctrine of the incarnation. God becoming flesh, fully God, fully human. So again, if this, this is the impulse, right? And I, I think we see this impulse in ourselves. Um, a lot of times, we are all about fleeing from reality. Uh, and I hope it's not just me, because reality, too much reality can be, well, too much. I, I want to, at all costs, minimize suffering. Now, that in and of itself probably isn't the worst goal. But sometimes it means that I don't actually live, that I don't take the risks, the day-to-day -day risk involved with being a human. And what I really want to zero in on for us and why docetism is actually cruel and actually harmful is that docetism, or this notion that God could not become one of us, or that you and I should try to escape the physical and just merely focus in on the spiritual is what our best teachers have told us, and that it is risks make life. Risks are what makes it worth being human, particularly the risk of love. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I, I've, I've told John and, uh, and uh, Virginia this story, but when I was in college, I was dating this girl who I thought was the one. Uh, and she thought I was too. And then one day, out of a clear blue sky, she was gone. And there was really no reason given. It was just over. And in the wake of that, and you know, understandably so, you gotta heal, drama, I didn't want to take a risk ever again. All the lights in the universe had gone dark for me. The last thing I want to do is to risk possibly experiencing something like that. And so for a long time, I think that not just with romantic relationships, but with life in general, it was essentially a spreadsheet. All right, 
how do I minimize suffering and maximize comfort? And again, I'm not trying to say that all comfort's bad or anything. I think you know that. But the impulse here that the flesh is gross, the flesh is evil, is can, can lead in our minds to things like this, that flight from this world is actually advantageous, that might actually be the spiritual way of doing things. But what we see amongst the earliest Christians, and why the earliest Christians focus more on the incarnation than on the atonement, is because that was the big question of their day. The big question of the day is, who is Jesus? More so than, what has Jesus done? They get Obviously, we get to that later. But at this time, you'll see entire theologies written centering around the incarnation. Because as, and I love this, so if you're a note taker, write this down. But as St. Gregory of Nazianzus once said, what he does not assume he cannot heal. Does that make sense? If, if, if the Son of God were to come down and be a phantom, be someone who kind of looks like us but actually isn't, well then how are we made right with God? Like, this is where they, they talk about the Incarnation as the Atonement because when God becomes a human and does what we should have done all along in our place and on our behalf, it is then that God can heal us. Not just souls in kind of a Greek platonic sense, but our whole beings. And so I think there is a a connection here with everyday life, with this tendency of ours to minimize the possible risk of any kind of suffering, of taking any kind of risk in our lives, that the doctrine of the Incarnation, the antithesis of Docetism, is saying love is worthy of the risk. Love might be, and I'm not just talking romantic love, but I am talking about that too. It's worth the threat of heartbreak. Because on a very profound level, all of us will be heartbroken at some point, right? Not just because your significant other might leave before you get married, but we are all, sad news alert, going to die. And our best friends are going to die too. And what the earliest Orthodox Christians have made very clear to us is that nevertheless, it is worth taking the risk of love. Nevertheless, it is worth pouring out yourself for your neighbor. Nevertheless, it is worth opening ourselves up to receive another's love. Now, we, we can do that as Christians, especially because we believe in the life that is to come, the new heavens and the new earth, that we will get new bodies, bodies that are not prone to decay and all of these things, but in the midst of the day-to-day of this life, because uh, as Paul's all used to say, sure, life is short, but life is also long. So in the time in between you becoming a Christian and you and me going to glory, sometimes that can be really long. And in the midst of that time, we can go out in confidence and trust and take risks and really allow ourselves to love 
and be loved because God in Jesus really did, as the, you know, the song, right? What if God became one of us? Well, God did. Sweat, blood, tears, and all. And actually, as opposed to being uncool, this is the coolest thing of all, right? We can, we can live day to day. We can take that risk. We can not just be singing the song, which I love, because sometimes we need it, that soon I will be done with the troubles of the world. Sometimes we need that song, right, when we're in the midst of the trouble. But in the midst of the day-to-day, we can, we can really live, and we can take risks for the kingdom. We can take you know, risks for your company, you know, risk for love. So at the risk of ending too, in too short a fashion, I'd rather get this to be a conversation. So I'm going to end right there. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.